Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. It's me, your host, Big Mark. If it's your first time listening, welcome. If it's uh, not your first time listening, welcome back. Um, I always like to say, you know, please rate the video if you like it. Um, uh, Follow us, subscribe to the podcast, hit the bell so you get the uh, notifications on YouTube. You can find us anywhere on any platform. Tell your friends if if you like what you hear and, uh, you know, we want to spread the word. If If you tell one friend... You know, we'll double the podcast. So we love you out there and thank you so much. Thank you everyone for supporting. Shout out Pops. Thanks for the new shirt. Um, you know, it's it's late Tuesday night, and you know, I'm doing the doing this recording, and you know, it's it's interesting with these ones, you know. I'm always I'm always interested, you know. And I, I, like I said, I was up to when people rate the podcast, everyone's been rating and thank you so much. Everyone's rating. We love you. We still love you for everything. You know, it, it makes a big difference when uh, w- when you guys spread the word, um, no matter what rating you give. Um, and, you know, it's something that, you know, when I do these solo ones, I kind of do them you know, based on my own kind of interests. And I know that there's probably some of these topics that not everyone's necessarily interested in. But you know what, it's... I know that it's something that I like and something that I'm passionate about. And, you know, I think that that's the only way I can continue to do these is, you know, is is to continue to just do what I'm interested in and you know it 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 will attract the people who who want to watch and want to listen and um it'll also hopefully you know spread uh spread some knowledge and that's my biggest goal you know is that some of these topics are you know not necessarily in everyone's wheelhouse but that hopefully in in listening to some of them um people get a little bit of a different experience a little bit of different knowledge who knows right and that's why I always like to say, you know, like write in, please comment on the videos, uh, shoot me a message on Instagram at the Big Mark Podcast or at the Big Mark Pod on Twitter, and you know it's, um, it's all about like kind of creating, you know, a little bit of discourse, a little bit of um, discussion, and a, a little bit about t- today's today's kind of focus is is mostly about this documentary called the seven five um it was it's uh done by tiller russell he's a great filmmaker i actually just listened to a podcast of his uh the other day which was really good and i'd watched this documentary a long time ago i think i don't know if it's still on netflix but i remember watching it a long time ago when it first kind of came on and you know it's just a fascinating story um kind of uh, well, all about police corruption in um, New York City in the 1980s. And, you know, obviously there's kind of a lot going on with with um, with police today. And, and it's really tough for everyone, a- anyone out there, all the first responders, especially in today's time. But, you know, it's just, you know, 
a lot of people have kind of looked at police officers in um, kind of more of a negative light recently. And, you know, we, we need someone to uphold the law that has studied it and understands it and has the authority to. And yes, maybe, or there has definitely been circumstances where police officers have um, pushed some boundaries there, of course, um, to fatal effect to to fatal outcomes, and that's horrible and that's tragic. And I'm so sorry to all the families who have ever had to to deal with any of this. Um, but then there's many police officers who saved many people's lives and continue to do so. Unfortunately, today's topic is going to kind of explore a little bit more of that dark underbelly. Again, this is New York City in the 80s. New York City in the 80s was a lot different than New York City of today. Well, I don't even know if I should be saying that. In fact, actually, it sounds like New York of today is a little bit a little bit closer to what New York of the 80s used to be. Um, unfortunately, in the aftermath of COVID, it sounds like, <clears throat> sounds like the city is, uh, is kind of in deep trouble. Um, but again, this point, at this point in New York City, um, it was essentially the murder capital of the world. There was about 3,500 murders per year in New York City. And, um, you know, one of the one of the police officers basically described some parts of New York City that they looked like Beirut buildings bombed out, empty, abandoned, you know, people just running electricity from straight from the the um, like transformer right to their house. Uh, it was just kind of a, a kind of a de- desolate place. And and it was really a result of, of kind of the crack epidemic and. <clears throat> you know, crack started becoming popular and it um, was decimating people's lives and, you know, people were dealing it and getting uh, serious jail time and, you know, everything was, was kind of back and forth with the police because of it and, you know, it was really, really a terrible thing. Um, there's actually a really, really interesting story about that um, <clears throat> that, um, I'll probably end up doing a podcast on someday, but that whole idea that how crack was introduced into these cities and it's, it's kind of chilling, but, um, this, the story of the seven five, which describes the 75th precinct in, in New York city. Um, the main character, if you will, is Michael Dowd. Um, you know, he was, He's kind of this character where, you know, I did a podcast on The Sopranos the other day and I don't know if it's the writing or the acting or something about Tony Soprano, you become, there's something about Tony Soprano that's endearing and that you 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 tend to root for him. Yes, there's points where you question that, but at the end of the day, you kind of want him to, to win and that's that anti-hero vibe where, you know, we can kind of, I, I believe it's based on the fact that we can kind of see a, a, a reflection of ourselves in these people, right? Because we're all a reflection of each other, you know, when we see these more negative characters, you know, that does reflect that more negative 
aspect of ourselves. Not that we necessarily want to feed into that and become a negative character. It's just the fact that, you know, you know, we are that balance of good and, and evil it, or, or good and bad, I should say, resides in all of us. And um, seeing characters like this kind of, you know, make you want to or sorry, are, are uh, very interesting when you see characters like this. They're at least very interesting and intriguing. Um, and then obviously past Tony Soprano, you kind of get into characters where there's not a lot of redeeming qualities and they just seem to be terrible. I wouldn't necessarily say my dad's fully terrible, but I'd say more so that he's just the kind of guy that saw opportunities and took them. And unfortunately, a lot of those opportunities were highly illegal. And, you know, that's... We'll get into the story. So uh, Michael Dowd was uh, a New York police officer for about 10 years. He joined the force when he was about 22. Um, and uh, he went on to commit hundreds of thefts, extortions, narcotics, trafficking, protecting drug operations, encouraging personal drug use. This guy was essentially just a wild man and was the epitome of the crooked cop. And I think, I think again, you know, this does, this will all kind of tie back to this whole idea of the, the crack epidemic was causing all, all this dissent, not only within criminals, but also within police, because there was so much crime going on. There was so much then opportunity for these cops to to go to to go bad and to become crooked so like i said you know we revolve around the 75th precinct in 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 east new york in brooklyn um like i mentioned about new york city uh about 3500 murders a year uh in in the 75 precinct alone there was about there was about 100 murders um uh Sorry, about 100 murders a month there, it just in the 7-5 precinct. It's the deadliest precinct in the country in the 80s. Highest murder rate in the country. Basically, everyone had guns. One of the police officers described it as the land of fuck. So, essentially, you know, it's just gone to shit and there's not a lot of rules. And it's interesting because you have these police officers that want to hold up the law... But they're risking their lives. You know, police officers were getting shot on the daily. Well, maybe not on the daily, but a lot of police officers were getting shot and injured and killed on the job. And it was just extremely dangerous. And when I say opportunities present themselves, I mean, you know, maybe you're going to bust someone and, you know, they have a lot of money on them. Maybe you take that money and let them go right? Because you want that money. Or, you know, maybe you go bust someone and you find a huge bag of cash and drugs. Maybe there's 10 kilos in there and you only tell tell everyone that you found nine. These, obviously this is going directly against what police officers want to do. And This, again, just speaks to the fact that police officers are just human beings. And we trust them to be unbiased. And we trust them to um, <coughs> to be truthful to the oath that they take. 
in to protect and serve people. But again, you know, I think when there's this drug that gets introduced to the community and you have all these people, uh, you have all these people, excuse me, Yeah, sorry about that. Um, <clears throat> you have all these people that, you know, when crime comes into play, especially organized crime that kind of surrounds um, uh, drug trafficking and, and drug usage and production and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> um it, it essentially creates a small economy in itself. And I think it's really interesting in these, um, in these scenarios. And I don't know if anyone's ever watched the wire, the wire kind of touches on some of these, some of these ideas that <clears throat> there's just this, there is this perpetual battle kind of between the police and, and, and these drug dealers and the fact that, the drug dealers are just trying to support themselves, support their lives. They've grown up into a society and they've grown up in a scenario and there's been generations of people who've lived through this now and that's all they know. And they've only figured out ways how to, how to get away from the police and they just see the police in not in, in a way that's not helpful. And it's not, and it's some, some, it's a part of society that, you know, um, the police aren't there to help you. They're there to put you in jail, take you away. In some in some instances, unfortunately, now um, hurt you more than 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 they should, and that's terrible because you know. Again, you just have to have you have to have a balance there, and I think obviously with all this drug with all this drug um, crime. It all, it all surrounds, you know, drug laws and stuff. And that's a whole another idea. I don't want to go too much into that. But again, this whole idea that, you know, this is just going to be a perpetual issue and that, and that police are just going to be constantly fighting this. It was ever, ev- it was, there was no other, no other place that it was more evident than 1980s New York and the 7-5 precinct. So one of the other main characters of the story is Kenny Urell. Uh, he's an uh, Irish Catholic guy from New York, uh, from Brooklyn. He became a, became a cop because he didn't really else n- know what else to do. He said he'd be, he would become a firefighter if the test was before. But he wrote the police test first. He got in, so then he became a cop. Um, <clears throat> him and Michael Dowd essentially become partners and, and go on to commit many crimes together. But Kenny's whole story is that he was really... He was really kind of coerced into joining, but Michael seemed to persuade him. But there's there were so many other factors that, you know, Kenny could have been doing this himself too. But anyway, we'll get into that later. Kenny and and Mike met each other in the police academy and they talk about this in, in they talk about this in the documentary where there's integrity training, right, in the police academy where they come in, they tell you, you know, to avoid all these opportunities I'm talking about that come up, how to how to stay 
a police officer that's that's staying true to their word and true to their story and and true to their job and 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 not hurting anyone and not harassing anybody and people from internal affairs would come and talk to all the recruits and you know um and you know obviously police academy is a way to get to know your fellow officers you know it's all it's a lot about camaraderie and you want to trust you know everyone beside you again these people are these police officers are facing danger at every like could you imagine especially now all these stories getting out of your car and you know going and having to pull someone over and not knowing whether they have a, a weapon and whether or not with all this other stuff they're ready to fight or even just to they're going to be an asshole to you and again you know I understand no one you know a lot of people have problem with authority and no one likes party poopers and stuff but again the police are there to to um to take care of you you know what I mean and and um unfortunately in 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 certain in certain areas of of the world they're not seen seen uh seen that way as much but in the police academy again they're there um learning that they got to have each other's back so when they are worried about all this stuff at least when they have their partner in the in the in the cruiser with them that's something that's going to give them some some uh some hope and some comfort and they have the same training and all that stuff. Obviously, we know what police academies do. Of course. Um, but like I said, they'd have, you know, they'd have um, um, people come in from internal affairs and, and talk to these recruits and say, listen, you know, you guys got to be careful what you do. Don't take any money. Don't take any bribes. Make sure everything you everything you find, you catalog properly, you follow, follow all the rules, blah, blah, blah. Essentially... Um, the internal affairs people come in, they'd give that whole spiel, they'd leave, and then the uh, the training officers from the academy would basically come in and say, forget all that, this is how you do it. And it was basically all about cover your own ass so you don't have to deal with internal affairs. You know, if your partner says they saw blue and it was green, if they say they saw blue, you say you saw blue. It's all about you know, being a good cop and essentially a good cop isn't just someone who's doing their job right. It's someone who's not going to give up another cop. It's going to go along with whatever the offer, whatever another officer says, no matter what. And it's essentially a survival mechanism. I totally get that. You know, obviously, like I said, you know, you're out there, you're worried about things, you know, certain things happen in situations that are out of your out of your control but because you're a police officer a lot of people are going to take your word so again there's just so much room for error and it just takes such a strong person to to properly follow and 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 be a you know a proper cop not just a quote unquote good cop as they say here and you know when you don't go along with this narrative, if you're a new recruit and you come in, you say, no, I'm going to follow the rules. I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to tell internal affairs when I see one of my fellow officers breaking rules that deemed and, and, and other police officers realize that you're not, you're not another, you're not a good cop. 
maybe they're going to be slower to react if something happens. You know, maybe they're not going to call in something happening uh, on the radio just right away if you get shot or you get injured or, you know, maybe your back is turned in the wrong way and, and you know, things happen, right? Accidents happen. So, you know, again, it's, it's not to say that there's a lot of these uh, accidents that happen. It's just these are what new recruits have in the back of their mind you know they don't want to become they don't want to be deemed a bad bad cop because they obviously don't want to be treated in 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 a negative way but they also want to be accepted by their peers and i can't imagine how jocular it is but you know just because it's just a high stretch it's almost it's paramilitary in that sense where you know there's a lot of that kind of high testosterone behavior and um again you want to support each other and you want to show each other that you know if someone's going if someone's staring down the barrel of the gun that your partner is always 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 going to have your back um so you know like i mentioned rookie cops usually are going to come in they're going to bend over backwards to follow the rules they're going to book everything everything that comes in you know, they're going to take their time. They're going to do it. And, you know, after a year or two, they're going to start seeing. So this is kind of generally what, what, what can happen, what could happen to a police officer joining. You know, they're following the rules. They're being sticklers. And, you know, it's starting to wear on them a little bit. You know, they've been driving in for, you know, 400 tours of duty. You know, they've been out there. Um, they're seeing that they're not stopping crime as much as they want. And that's, again, another aspect of the fact that they just kept feeding this this crack epidemic and, you know, it just was it was never, never going to stop. And, you know, as a police officer, maybe you're feeling underappreciated. And then, like I said, you know, maybe you feel underpaid and then you see an opportunity and maybe you need a couple hundred bucks and you're going to take it. So it's tough, again, when, when you're going to have to actually bring all this stuff out and write write all this paperwork and create all this paperwork for all this evidence that you found are you going to do that or are you going to just you know take some of that cash or leave it and say you know um you know in, in mike dowd's case leave it and then come back and try and steal it later but not to be that extreme as mike dowd but these simple little choices you know it's almost like what Jordan Peterson always says about the about the Nazi guards or, you know, the the police officers in Germany that rounded up a lot of Jewish people that were not far from making these decisions. And, you know, a lot of these again, every every police officer is a human being and, and a lot of these people that they, they probably go and, you know, they're under tremendous amounts of stress and it, again, like I said, it takes an extremely strong person, and they do exist. There's lots of great police officers out there, but it just shows you how easy it is for things things to go sour. And I'm not necessarily talking about police abuse or anything like that, or uh, you know, police brutality or anything like that, but just necessarily corruption and things like this, where you know you hope for the best, but some of these things can can turn. Um, very easily, and that's just kind of the human condition. Um, so, uh, one of the one of the first stories, or one of the first times that kind of 
broke or not necessarily broke the camel's back, but really started pushing Mike into doing some dastardly, uh, dastardly crimes is that Mike and his partner at the time, uh, before he was with Kenny, uh, actually rob, rob a drug dealer. Um, and you know, they go in and they show him the badge, everything they see, all this stuff. Um, and they just take it and they say, it's your lucky day. You're not going to jail. We're just take, we're just going to confiscate all the stuff. And then they just kept all the money. And, um, again, what is it? The, the drug dealer is going to say, Hey, these police officers stole all my money and they're police officers. Everyone's going to take their word for it. Right. So, um, that was kind of, you know, what started and, and amongst, and that was kind of Mike's MO, you know, he would go in there as, as a police officer, go in there, uh, and, and usually just confiscate the money and, and just kind of keep it for himself. Um, so, you know, while, while Mike was doing all this stuff in September of 1986, so I think Mike Dowd was in the police academy in 1982 or so, uh, so while Mike was a police officer, uh, 13 police, 13 other police officers were arrested on corruption charges in the 77th precinct. So a, a close precinct to the seven, five, the seven, seven, um, some officers were, in this case, some officers were boring ladders and hatchets from firefighters to raid drug homes. So it was easy to catch these guys. These guys were, were, were barbaric. And a lot of the officers hearing about this at the 7-5 kind of resigned to avoid avoid the scandal. Um, and Mike, Mike Dowd was the only police officer who didn't resign. Um, and he just relied on the hope that no other, no other police officer is going to... Um, going to uh turn him in and that was that whole idea of being a good cop and a lot of cops just wanted lived up to that and probably gritted and bared their teeth and just watched this this guy commit all these crimes or just kind of you know again just kept that code and it's oddly honorable in a sense but it's it's sad because of mike's kind of had that kind of more twisted idea of of that loyalty to to police officers and and was he just manipulating the system and just hoping that they wouldn't turn him in or is he does he actually truly believe that as a police officer he's you know he's just messing with drug dealers he's not hurting anybody who knows um So, like like I mentioned before, you know, when when Kenny started joining joining Mike and, and and doing some of this stuff, Kenny really makes it seem that Mike, um, really had to work hard to get Kenny to break the law. But again, Kenny wasn't making a whole lot of money at the time, and I think that was a lot more tempting. So, as you see, as you'll see more when Kenny Urell is is isn't is joining in in doing more stuff with Mike, you know, it's. You know, I think Kenny, in hindsight, is trying to make himself look a little bit better. But hey, what can you do? Um, uh, another another person who who kind of was was major in this story. His name is Joe Hall. He's a homicide detective in the Seven Five, and he's at, he was trying to take down uh, Cello, uh, who's a Dominican gangster in uh, La Campania, which is like basically their their family, the company. Uh, of uh, it's a small drug dealing um, outfit um, full of uh, Dominican dudes and um, and 
like these these guys were wild. So Joe and Joe and one of his partners were were surveilling um, the, these got cello and, and the Dominican and La Campania's uh, kind of hideout. And as they kind of noticed that they were being seen, they're pulling out and and all the gangsters started all the gang members started grabbing guns and shot at them and chased them for a few blocks. The officers had to like kind of sprint to the precinct and, and hide out because they're just getting they're just getting followed. Um, <clears throat> and um, meanwhile, Mike and Kenny were working with Baron who was a member of, of La Campania. So these these gang members that were shooting at these at these at their fellow officers, Mike and Kenny were already working with these dudes. And um you know, Mike uh at one point Mike um Mike and Kenny work out a deal that they're going to kind of provide information to La, La Campania and say, you know, watch out if, if something's going down and, you know, kind of be a little bit of a police presence and they're supposed to pay them money too. So Mike and Mike and Kenny were getting paid. And one, one time they short them some money, they don't pay them all the money that they should have. And, um, Mike just like sat out front of their drug, their drug dealing spot and j- just would, har- was harassing everybody. And so they put a hit out on Mike. Uh, La Campania says, Cello says, we got to shoot this guy. Mike ends up confronting Cello in the street and says, like, you want to you want to kill me? Like, let's fight right now. So Cello goes back, tells Baron the hits off Uh, again. This is just wildness. This is all crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. So, like I said, you know, La Campania is kind of a a lower level street, like street level crew. Um, While Mike's dealing with all this stuff. He kind of is, he's gaining a reputation within the crime the crime world that he's going to be a cop that that you want to have around. He's, he's someone that's that's there to to uh, um, <clears throat> protect you, and you know he's on the take. He gets it. Um, so Adam Diaz steps into the mix, and he's the boss of basically the company's like supply supplier gang, uh, the Diaz organization. Um, he moved much, much larger volumes and basically was the supplier to La Campania, but they worked together very closely. Um, to put it in perspective, in 1987, when this was all happening, the price of a kilo of cocaine was about $34,000. When uh, when he was 20, Diaz was moving about 300 kilos a week. So he was making millions of dollars a year. Um and Baron basically introduces Mike to Adam and says, you know, Mike, are you going to help? Adam says to Mike, you know, are you going to help me, you know, look after my business and everything? And Mike says, listen, we'll watch over uh, all the drug deals, we'll watch over your crew. We'll tell you if there's under undercover officers around, you know, if we need to uh, provide basically police escorts, they would. Right. So for twenty four thousand dollars down, eight thousand dollars a week. Uh, to inform Diaz, Mike and uh, Kenny were were making this money. Um, um, when Diaz was working with Mike, you know he he never really thought that that Mike was really a police officer. He's kind of had that vibe of always that he was a criminal. And it's really interesting that 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 Diaz says that because actually another officer 
<clears throat> from Internal Affairs mentions very similar a very a very similar uh, a description of of Mike, which is very interesting. Um, <clears throat> Diaz was really cocky about having the the police in his pocket. You know, you know, he got it. It was like, you know. It was it was a good look for him to be like, hey, I, I'm I'm powerful. I, I have the police in my pocket. They can do they do what I tell them to. Um, he basically uh, like at, at one point, Mike uh, gave the Diaz organization police issue bulletproof vests and they wore them. They wore them with pride. Look at the police are even giving us gifts. It's like it was freaking twisted. Um and, you know, one time Mike tipped off Diaz to a bust that saved him five $500,000 in coke. Um, again, you know, this is, this is, Mike was valuable. He was helping. Um, while this was happening, Mike and Kenny actually started conducting robberies for the Diaz organization. So the Diaz organization would go and they'd say, you know, I have all these, these rival gangs and we got to take them out. Um Mike and Kenny and his and their crew would actually get the locations from narco, the narcotics unit and go scope out the locations. So they would use the resources of the police department to go find these locations to rob, find these rival drug dealers. Um, <clears throat> it when they were all on duty, their little their little crew of crooked cops um, would all be on duty and they'd go and perform these robberies. And if someone called in the called in a robbery to the police they would be the re responding unit so they would just pretend that they were just responding instead of the ones that actually were performing the robbery and um they would use police tactics stuff that they learned in the academy you know to protect themselves and 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 basically take these people by by <clears throat> by complete surprise sorry i got a frog in my throat today uh basically people take these people by complete surprise uh, which is which is completely wild. Um, you know, it it was my, you could tell Mike was starting to kind of blur the lines between, you know, who was his real employer? Was it the NYPD or the drug dealers that paid him? He said sometimes because he was getting paid so much by these drug dealers, sometimes he would forget to pick pick up his paycheck at the at the police station. So you know, this guy was living above his means, living large vacations gambling jewelry for his wife he bought a new red corvette crazy thing and again this is a police officer he's not supposed to be making that much money at this time it's, he's i'm pretty sure he was just like a, a a police officer he wasn't he wasn't like a sergeant or like a captain or like whatever the really high rankings are that make a lot of money and you know he's ripping in this red corvette and it's like bro come on um during this time, a transit officer named Robert Venable was actually killed by members of La Compagna. So this is the thing: like, what are you? Are you a cop, or are you are are you a drug dealer? Mike Dowd and Kenny have to make that decision, right? It's what what are you doing that's you know even remotely close to saving these people? You're you're helping, and and. You are aiding these people that are also killing one of your uh, fellow officers. Very, very conflicted. Um, at one point, Mike Dowd is asked whether he considers himself an, an, a New York City cop or a drug trafficker. And he admits to saying both. You know, he thinks he's both. So, um, 
a character conflicted again you know think what you will about about Mike Dowd but a character conflicted indeed um so the kind of impetus for this whole thing kind of come crashing down there was an inside informant working with uh with detective Joe Hall and he told him that Diaz was working with a cop named Mike the cop and he drives a red Corvette so you know Joe Hall's thinking okay what the hell's going on here uh, it's obviously Mike Dowd, um, and they basically tie him to about 30 other officers. Uh, Internal Affairs kind of takes things over there, of course. Joe Tromboli uh, is uh, another one of the as one another one of the officers working on things. Um, when at one point he walks by Mike Dowd in the precinct, and as he's walking by him, he looks at him, and he, the feeling that he gets is is perp. He doesn't get a feeling that he's a police officer, even though he's in uniform. And uh, an officer Trump Tromboli was always really conflicted about that because, again, obviously his his feelings were correct. Um, you know, inside affairs followed him on duty, off duty. It's obviously very hard to follow a cop because they know when they're being followed, especially Mike Dowd. And he's being extremely paranoid. Um, you know, uh, Officer Tromboli was kind of talking about how heartbreaking it is for for other police officers to 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 bust a cop. You know, it's really tough because you know they took this oath to give their lives to protect, and you know none of that meant anything to Mike. And it was really, you know, it was tough. Even though who knows when you look at Mike, maybe he did understand that, and but he exploited it. There's no doubt. Um. Again, I think all of this was surrounding this crack epidemic. It's a secondary and tertiary effect of this whole thing. The crack operations by the CIA, bringing them in. Like I mentioned, I'll probably do another podcast about that. But bringing this whole, bringing this drug into the country and spreading this in to kind of disrupt socioeconomic um, happenings. Just, just awful. But this is what happens. This is not only going to affect... The people that are doing the drugs and selling the drugs are also going to affect all these police officers that are going to have to try to uphold these laws that maybe aren't necessarily weren't necessarily created with the best intentions. And that's a really tough pill to swallow because, you know, there's no such thing as a bad drug. You know, a drug is an inert is a compound. It has no it's no sentience in it itself. It just depends on how you use it, and yeah, maybe some some drugs can can make people lose control. But you know, if if they were regulated and if they were looked after by a governing body, we'd get clean drugs. We wouldn't. We'd have more information about them, how to use them, and then more information about how to deal with someone who who does get into some trouble. But because all this stuff is illegal, you can't do any of this. You can't get into these these even these talks and even you know research and and luckily now you know with psychedelics becoming um allowed to be researched a little bit more it's helping but even all these drugs you know again there's no such thing as a bad drug and it's the media that's really changed our perception in in how these and what these drugs actually do to these two people but um you know because if if this drug wasn't illegal anymore all these cops wouldn't be dying and getting killed and having all this all this uphill climb it's totally whole other subject i gotta do another podcast on it trust me 
Um, so, and, and again, Mike never really felt bad because all he was doing was just fucking over some lowly drug dealer in his mind. So this is what it is, is that it makes these people who are involved in this drugs seem like lesser people and then others view them as, as a person to exploit. It's just not fair. Um, <clears throat> Mike started, Mike Dow started getting addicted to cocaine and alcohol during this time. Obviously, you know, he's living wild. He's living at the top. He's living on, uh, in the red zone, man. So he needs to some, something to kind of like deal with all that, I'm sure. And obviously he started making bad decisions, started acting irrationally. Um, but he always just fell back on that whole idea that no cop is ever going to turn him in. Um, um, because of Mike's irrational behavior, because he was doing all these drugs, Kenny's obviously his partner's getting worried, and <coughs> you know they talk about it a little bit in the film. Mike and Kenny are partners, but it's almost like a marriage. You know, you have to trust your partner with everything you have, and they did trust each other. And like, like as much, even if Kenny was persuaded to join. When he was in, he was in 110%. And he kept things tight because Mike was crazy. He kept things tight. So he was obviously worried about Mike with all this drug use. But more importantly, the Diaz organization was starting to get a little bit worried about Mike's behavior. Obviously, they know he's going to get irrational. Maybe he's going to flip. Maybe he's going to do whatever, right? And that's, that's not a good look. So... May 1992 is about 10 years into this whole charade. Uh, Suffolk, Suffolk County Narcotics raid Kenny's house. So they bust in. They bust down the door. They're looking for the money. They know they got the money. Uh, internal affairs um, orders a mandatory drug test for Mike. And then they arrest him for narcotics conspiracy. <clears throat> uh, while they're out on bail. So they get arrested. They get out on bail. Mike and Kenny plan to kidnap a rival drugs de drug dealer's wife and rob them and sh uh, and skip out on bail. So while this is all happening, they're they're planning on a kidnapping and and supposed to be giving giving this person over to uh, the Diaz company. Um but before um um before like about a month before the kidnapping the DEA approaches Kenny's lawyer and tells them they actually have a federal case against Diaz and La Compania and um La Compania and they are all completely involved in it and they have federal case against them uh they've been taping all the events and again Kenny and everybody including Mike obviously are facing federal charges so Kenny flips he starts cooperating <clears throat> and he starts wearing a wire, uh, Kenny, and so um, it comes around to the night of the actual kidnapping, Kenny and Mike go to the, go, they're driving there, uh, Kenny's wearing a wire, they turn on the police scanner, and Mike hears that the street is under surveillance by the DEA, and he friggin' bails, and he starts flipping out, He's so suspicious. He knows someone. He knows someone flipped for sure. Um, he's someone told. He, he's he's tripping. He's tripping. Um, but Kenny had all the right answers, so he didn't suspect him right away. Um, 
In July of that same year, 1992, so a couple uh, months later, the DEA arrested Mike Dowd with Kenny's help. Uh, the Mullen Commission fined dozens of other police officers uh, guilty of corruption, and Michael Dowd was convicted of racketeering and conspiracy to distribute narcotics, and he served 12 years in prison. Um, <clears throat> Tiller Russell, the, the filmmaker, spoke with... Um, Spoke with Mike Dowd, Dowd recently, and um, Mike Dowd says nothing's changed. All the same corruption stuff, even though there's been arrest, even though there's been the same stuff. Uh, I guess at least in New York City, it's all the same. And, you know, again, it's this never-ending battle of good and evil. And, and I, I obviously don't support these officers that have become corrupt, but I kind of understand because... You know, you want to have this camaraderie, you want to have this loyalty, you want to prove to to all your fellow police officers that you're you're a good cop. But it's such a slippery slope, and you know we need we need the strongest of individuals, not only physically but mentally, to to be able to to overcome some of these things with compassion and with with empathy. It's strength doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be cold and and, and calculated. It's more so upholding that law in the sense that they're understanding why these people are maybe inherent inherently breaking the law maybe as a society we can get over some of these drug issues and we can start focusing on more more um nefarious shit where that's actually you know um murders and you know stuff that's um you know corporate crimes even right like that that are, are, are that are affecting global economies and stuff like that um, and then start shifting the whole mindset that, you know, whether it's drug use or whether it's mental health, that, you know, these people need help and it's not necessarily some, it's not necessarily the solution to just throw them in jail and hope that they're going to just figure it out because a lot of, a, a lot of people, especially if they're addicted to a drug, the last place that, that they should be is just going cold Turkey. I mean, not a lot of drugs can kill you in withdrawal, but this is the thing, you know, the drugs aren't necessarily the reason why people are like this, you know, the drugs maybe are there to try and mitigate some of the pain and suffering that they that they go through on a daily life. But, you know, it's like Superman said, the never ending battle between good and evil and not that it's a, you know, kabuki or anything like that or some type of strange theater, but you know, maybe we need this kind of back and forth that exists and there is some darkness and there is some some good that has to kind of ebb and flow and I don't know, take that as you will, but you know, there's something about that where, you know, we need it's to make a, a, a crude sports analogy, we need the referees out there because everyone's just gonna go out there and, and break any of the rules and and not really follow them because we're humans and that's that's what we do we want to push the boundaries and some people don't don't agree with with some of the laws that were that were created and you know obviously from murder to you know jaywalking you know and it's it's a it's a hell of a fucking continuum but you know a lot of people draw the line at different different parts there where where they're willing to quote unquote, you know break the law so <sighs> empathy love lead with compassion you know 
not all cops are are terrible people and you know thank you to all the police officers out there that put put your lives on the line and you know work hard and shout out to all my friends who are out there and you know risking their lives and putting their lives and and asses on the line you know we need you out there and uh yeah i think uh i think that's how that's how you got to do it like i said lead with love and, and and empathy and and understand that you know on both sides we need to be doing that same thing and and hopefully we'll make steps forward as a society to start getting out of some of these really heavy duty drug war uh policies and it'll just make uh life a lot easier Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Um, you know, like I said, rate the podcast. We love you all. Thank you so much. Um, uh, follow us on on Instagram at the Big Mark Pod, uh, and and on our Twitter at the Big Mark Podcast. Uh, check out our Patreon. You can support the podcast there. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Big Mark Pod. And yeah, tell your friends. We love you so much. Spread the word. And uh, take care of yourselves out there. Stay safe. We love you. Peace.